Welcome to today's episode of Always Bet on Black. I'm your host, Paula Glover, President and CEO of the American Association of Blacks and Energy. Today, we're having a great conversation with Mr. Kevin Walker, Chief Operating Officer of Duquesne Light. Kevin has had an extensive career in senior leadership in the utility industry, having served in senior positions at Con Edison, AEP, Iberdrola, Southern California Edison, and now Duquesne Light. Thank you so much for joining us. You're in for a great discussion. So today we're gonna to be talking with Mr. Kevin Walker, who is the Chief Operating Officer for Duquesne Light. Kevin, thank you so much for um, joining me today for Always Bet on Black. I really appreciate you giving us some time. Oh, Paul, you know I'm happy to be here. You ask and, and I'm here. Oh, I look, that, that's music to my ears. I gotta figure out <laughs> how to capitalize on that. That's what I need yeah. to know how to monetize. Yeah. Um, so you know what, Kevin, you have had really a pretty amazing career in this business because you've been um, a senior C-suite leader in multiple utility companies. And you really started, I think, um, in energy industry terms, relatively young. Um, but I think what I'd like to do is kind of start from the beginning with you. Um, mm -hmm. And then we'll, we, I know you're going to drop many, many nuggets, nuggets that our listeners will enjoy um, and we'll work through. Um, yeah. So you are a DC DC boy from born and yeah, raised in Washington, right. DC. That's right, Southeast and uh, then moved around, uh, but just born in Southeast, yeah. And then this, and you decided to go to West Point. So uh, share a little bit about that decision-making and, and why West Point and, and service. Yeah, well, th this shows how somebody can really be influential in your life. Cause I had a guidance counselor, she was African-American and she took a liking to me. She knew that I was doing, and I played sports and I was, you know, decent in grades. And so she came and she said, well, what are you gonna do after graduation? And I was like, uh, um, go somewhere and play football. And, you know, where there's a lot of fun and a lot, you know, I was thinking about this exciting, you know, college time. And she knew the three things that were important to me. One was sports. Uh, one was my parents couldn't afford to pay for college. So it needed to be close to free, if not free. Uh, in that I needed to be somewhere where I could uh, have a, a job afterwards. So she pulled on those strings. Like every time we talked, she's like, you got to think about the academy. And I had no clue on what the academy was. I mean, nobody had ever been in the military in my family. Uh, you know, I watched a John Wayne movie or so when I was a kid, but that's all I knew about the military. So she was the single most influential person in getting me to go to West Point. And had I known what I was getting into, because I had to do interviews with politicians and all these people, I would not have been my best self because it would have, you know, the weight of it, the gravity of like, yeah. oh, this person could make or break my life, you know, making this decision would have probably been too much. But I, I strolled in there just as, like I was talking to you, just in this. Yeah. And, and I talked to people and I remember the a senator I interviewed with, he said, man, you are really calm and you are really chill. And you're like, this doesn't even phase you. We need this kind of person on the battlefield, right? right. So it was a, a, a series of very fortunate investments by others into me that got me to West Point. That's pretty cool. My father retired from um, the army after 20 years and his dream was for me to go to West Point. And mm. I always wondered why, I mean, there were three of us and I was the only child that he was like, you should yeah. go to West Point. And I knew just enough about the army to be really, really dangerous yeah. um, and incredibly scared. And, mm -hmm. you know, at, in my young life, all I could think is, no, they're not going to let me wear whatever I want to wear. So that's, I'm going to scratch that. Well, first um, of all, what I know about you, you would have been great. And second of all, one of the biggest things happening for African-American women at West Point is getting their hair done because yeah. the, the beauticians, they don't really know how to do hair mm -hmm. for black women. And 
um, you know, as they as they talk about this, people don't understand how important that is as a part of our culture, right? Yeah. So they're like, you know, well, you know, so anybody can do your hair. Like, no, not anybody can do my hair. So that's a big issue. They're trying to find and bring in people who can do black women's hair or find somebody just off post to make it work. And so like, we're getting involved in that as African-American alumni to help them, you know, do this really important thing that's to their, their personal value and worth and all the other stuff. So it's, it's cool. That's amazing. So you're still connected to West Point. So oh, yeah, you, yeah, yeah. you leave West Point and I know you then spent some time overseas in, in Augsburg, Germany, and we talked about what a wonderful place that is. So tell me a little bit about how kind of that part of your life, right? Being in the service, being in the army, being an officer, mm-hmm. um, how did that inform your leadership style? How did it prepare you? Um, and how did it not prepare you for kind of yeah. your subsequent roles in industry? Yeah, well, obviously in the military, we know it's kind of command and control that people do stuff because they have to in a lot of ways. And you can play that card all day long. You don't even have to be a good leader. You just have to say, do this, do that, do this, and people will jump and do it. But I found that there was an X factor, like a, you know, a multiplication factor when you did try to lead, when you did encourage people. You know, and I think about it, I'm, I'm this butter bar, as we call it, a second lieutenant. I'm showing up on my first assignment. I have to lead a person who's been in the military for um, 20 years. And they've been in combat like five times. They got all these stripes up their arms to, you know, to tell them that they know how to go to war and come back alive and keep their other people alive. And I've got to be in charge of that person and tell them what to do. So I can go in there and say, like, look, I got my swagger on. I'm from West Point. I'm going to tell you what to do. Or I can go in there and be humble, which is what I did, and said, look, there's nothing I can tell you about what you need to do. You need to tell me everything so I can you know, get up to speed and be helpful. I said, I'm going to be responsible. So I'm, you know, I'm not taking that, that um, you know, I'm not giving that to you. I'm not making you responsible. I'm going to be responsible, but you need to help make, you know, get me smart. And I'm going to ask you lots of questions and I'm going to learn. I'm going to be like a sponge. And, and at some point we're going to be at the right level where we can, you know, really help each other out. And uh, that worked for me. I didn't go in with a directive. I went in with the learning, but also taking the ownership as the leader. That's interesting. Cause as I'm listening to you share that, I think, wow, that's probably a little bit of what new leaders need to do in our companies, right, in established groups, and particularly young leaders, mm-hmm. um, when mm-hmm. you're, you know, kind of coming into a company where you have people who may have been in these roles for a very long time, and here you come as the not the young manager um, yeah. or the young supervisor who may not mm-hmm. have been around as long, um, and you still got to get people to, right, um, one believe that you can do the job, yeah, um, but also help you have all the information you need so you do the job. Wow. Yeah, and people really appreciate it because I mean they they didn't just drop off a turnip truck, right? I mean they've been successful in their own way yeah. for years before you got there, so you can't come in and invalidate all that and pretend that like I I, I did that one time when my early on when I was transitioned from the military went to my first boss, I was like you know salt and vinegar. I was like out there and I'm gonna I'm gonna break things and fix it and I'm gonna do all this stuff and you know like right you know you know how successful that was. I- I, wa- I walked into my boss's office and I was like, See, I-, I had a whole list of all these things that were wrong and needed to be fixed. And I was halfway through the first half of the first sentence before he said, look at my wall. Look at my wall over there, Kevin. He had all these awards that he had won. He said, I didn't get those awards for doing the wrong thing. And I remember that to this day, like almost 30 years later, because it's right. You have to validate people where they are. They're not going to look at your red ball and trade it for their blue ball until you tell them how beautiful their blue ball is. Yeah. And, and that then they might be willing to trade it. But if you tell them their blue ball is ugly and you need a red ball, they're gonna look at you like, they're gonna just hold on tighter to that, right? They're not yeah. gonna let go of it. 
Yeah, I've had I've I've experienced that with someone who's worked people who work for me who have done the same thing, and it's kind of like um, <laughs> you do know that I didn't get here yesterday. Like I kind of know a little bit. I don't know as much right. as you do, but I know right. enough to kind of make it the last thirty years. So mm-hmm. we're gonna. So so you leave West Point. You leave the service. How long did you serve? And thank you for your service. How long did you serve? Oh, thank you. Six six and a half years. And I was in the first Gulf War, and then after that was over, I came out and. Uh, and wound up going into the utility space because I was looking for something that had very similar, tra- you know, service oriented, you know, a lot of teamwork, collaborations, things you could be proud of. Um, I had friends who were going into, you know, the financial arena, man, you need to make as much money as you can and you need to do this. But I was looking for something that, you know, kind of was a m- mimicked all the things I liked about the military. And obviously our industry with, you know, storms and fires and floods and, and you know, the, the criticality of the service we provide. Um, you know, gas, electric, steam, any, anything you want to pick, any of the disciplines is so critical. I mean, I, I, I got what I needed in spades and that's why I've been in the industry for so long. Wow. So now that's interesting too, because if I think about how you started talking about how you even ended up at West Point, right? So guidance counselor and the things that were important to you, you said were sports, mm-hmm. that it had to be almost free. Yes. And what was the third item? Um, and that I had a, a trajectory into a career afterwards trajectory into a career, but also I, I would assume just based on why you ended up in utilities, being of service actually was a value. You may not yeah. have known it at 18, but you certainly came to realize that that was going to be important to you. To You're sharp. I need a couch to lay down on because that sounded like my therapist. You are absolutely right. And what I was talking about was the head stuff and what you just tapped into was the heart stuff, the service thing that really um, was in me and maybe I didn't know it, but you know, being the oldest child, you know, kind of being forced to be a grown up before my time, I was working when I was 16 and providing money to the family and all that stuff. And this kind of service and connectivity and all that stuff, which is the hard stuff, uh, really did drive me into the military and then in, into the utility industry. Yeah. So you, you can- you're on top of it. Thank you. So you end up, where do you start? What's your, is it, what's your first company? Con Edison. Is it, Con Edison? it is City. Con Edison. Yeah. So yeah. Con Edison. you're a New York City guy with, That's right. you know, they got steam over there in New York and all kinds mm-hmm. of yeah. stuff happening. Everything, everything. And you, yeah, it was great. It was great. And I started at a power plant and uh, <sighs> I think I stayed in um, the longest time I stayed in a role was about two years. Wow. And, um, and, and it was mostly uh, promotions, but not all, but, but mostly promotions. Um, and I found that I was taking a lot more risk. Um, one, banking on myself, but also taking risks that other people wouldn't take. I got my first officer position because the first 18 people that were asked to take that role said no to it. I'm convinced. I don't know if it was 18. Oh. I know there was a lot of usual suspects, right? That <laughs> like would have gotten that role before I did. And most of them, I think, you know, didn't want to leave New York or didn't want to do some other things. So they were comfortable in their, in their lane. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think they got to me somewhere down the list and said, well, you know, are you interested in this role of going to New Hampshire as part of this merger that Con Edison was going to do to be a loaned executive uh, for this, you know, for this program? And um, and I would have been promoted to my first executive position. And I was like, wow. yeah, sure. I mean, I was single at the time. I mean, in the military, you move around a lot. So that wasn't something that bothered me that you couldn't. Uh, reinvent yourself and be integrated into a new community and find a new bagel shop and find a new coffee shop. You know, I, I wasn't concerned about that. I wasn't concerned about the ethnic 
mix. I, I think I increased the diversity of the state by, you know, a bunch when I got 100%. there myself, yeah, by 100% maybe. Um, but I wasn't, I wasn't afraid of any of that stuff because I had already reinvented myself many times before and been successful in different things. And that was the first time that I got to the officer level um, in, that, in that role. Just that well, job in and of itself or being a part of that process. Yeah, what, it is. Who are you guys um, kind of meshing it, with in New Hampshire? It was Northeast Utilities and it didn't oh, actually go okay. through. Yeah, it didn't actually go through. Um, and so I wound up coming back to Con Edison um, at the end of about a year working in, in New Hampshire. So it was, uh, it was a great experience. And I, and I loved working for a small utility and it was only three officers in the company. So if yeah, the three yeah. of us agreed, it was going to get done. <laughs> Uh, you know, it was, you know, that kind of thing. It's like know. my office. It was, yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> what do you think? I think it's great. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it right. There's power, there's power in that. And, and I've worked in big yeah. and small utilities, but that was, that was awesome. And uh, yeah, we did some great things there, but coming back to Con Edison, you know, sometimes you do things and you don't really know like why, I mean, being an engineer, so I'm an engineer uh, and an MBA, but the engineer part is what's important for this story. I, I, broke down everything that was important to me because I had the option to stay in public service in New Hampshire. So I was like, what's important to me? And I had, you know, weighted it all. And I had like a hundred items. And, you know, I went through this whole like, you know, spreadsheet of all this stuff. And I looked at the numbers at the bottom after I added them all up and it was, you know, stay in New Hampshire, um, like 106, go back to Con Edison 107. So it really didn't, help me, <laughs> it didn't help me very much at all. <laughs> in a scientific way, I was like, well, that's, in, you know, that's in the margin of error. That doesn't, you know, that doesn't really tell me. Um, but I went back to Con Edison and it was, I knew there was reasons I needed to be there. And then 9-11 happened. And my role was to put the power back on at ground zero. Um, mm. Mentor, I'm, I'm getting a little choked up about this. My mentor, uh, Dick Morgan, who was killed uh, during 9-11. Mm. Um, he was a um, emergency responder, like liaison. So when the fire uh, police, anybody who was emergency responder uh, went to anything like that, he would attach himself right to their command center and give them advice on like where our facilities were and how to right. avoid, you know, gas, steam, electric, all the other things that we had in the ground. So he, he, co-located with them right when 9-11 happened. And then when the towers came down, he got killed with all the rest of the leadership. Oh my goodness. Um, and, and this is, you know, where, you know, I, I believe in, um, in a divine intervention. And this is where, um, you know, divine intervention put me out of harm's way. I was doing my MBA course at Wharton and we had an uh, international study component. And so I wound up being in, uh, in our international study component, like, you know, thousands of miles away um, and when 9-11 happened. If I was in New York, I would have been right next to Dick. That was my job. I was kind of understudying for him. So I would have been right next to Dick and what happened to Dick would have happened to me. So um, wow. I am, that doesn't, that's not lost on me that the divine intervention has been there throughout my uh, life, right? Yeah. So can you talk a little bit? I mean, you're probably one of the few people that I've met who've had such a, a close, close connection um, to those events of 9-11 and, and having just, right, it's been 19 years. Mm -hmm. um, talk a little bit about that. What did that do, I think, even for the people in the company to, to you know, it really kind of harkens or reminds you about how one important um, the work that we do generally in this industry, but particularly these utility workers, um, but also that there is some risk there that people don't necessarily consider. So how do you, how did you think about your work after that experience? Yeah, yeah, it was interesting. You know, my my um, there are lots of highs and lows in that experience, as you could imagine. 
things come, these are the best of times, these are the worst of times. And, you know, just a horrific, tragic sort of environment that you just, you know, nobody should ever have to go through that. Um, but I saw people coming together. Um, I saw, you know, not only the state of New York and the city of New York, but the country and the world. And I saw this outpouring of love and support. I saw, you know, you know, thumbs up. I mean, you know, I saw the president, you know, stand on a rubble and say that we're going to get, you know, back from this. And that meant something when we, we needed to hear that, you know, as a country and certainly as people like working through this. You know, I mean, I, I want to be in therapy after that um, because, but but at the time, it was all about being strong for my people and the people I needed to leave for and for the role and all that stuff. And you know, once I was through that and able to kind of like think about myself, I had to take some self care um, on that too, and it was very very helpful. And and that was hard for me because you know I'm macho and never had that kind of thing before, and I saw that as a failure and all that. But I, but I'm so happy I did that. So for people who are listening to this and you know, if you need help in any way, um, you know, don't be stigmatized by it. Don't feel like you, you know, you're less than or not worthy, um, you know, in any way you need, I think is worth going and, and pursuing that because we want to be whole people. Sometimes we can't do it ourselves and that's okay. Um, but I remember when, you know, clouds, is, you know, think about that. All these this tall buildings collapsed into three stories and all this fax machines and paper and desk and all this stuff like just you know vaporized um i remember they said that it was all clear the air was fine and we were wearing our respirators and stuff down there as con edison and we were told by you know the authorities like everything is all clear and i said no it's not all clear i could barely see somebody across the street and you're telling me so i i, I made our folks wear their um, mask and they were mad at me like oh you know this is this is a burden and we're standing right next to firefighters who don't have their mask on and all this stuff and i was like look i don't care um you know we're it's better to be safe than sorry we're gonna wear the mask and now look you know 19 years mm -hmm. later, 19 years but you know there's people all kinds of respiratory issues that came from that um so uh, i'm very happy and it wasn't you know getting divine intervention i didn't have any information that anybody else didn't have but i just had this abundance of caution that i wanted to take care of my folks and make sure that they Put themselves at risk and uh, it worked out it worked out really positive yeah well i thank you for sharing a little bit about you know kind of this self-help and the importance of self-help i think um you know we here we're recording this in the middle of a pandemic mm. um and and just several weeks ago i was able to do a video roundtable that's also going to air on this podcast and that ended up becoming a topic of discussion right um how do you ensure um that your team is getting kind of the help that they need and a recognition um, that this is emotionally difficult for people. It's not just like the work is hard. There are all these other things that are going on. Um, and, and so tell me as, as a leader, how you think about that for the people that you're leading and, and how have you been thinking about, you know, this intersection of kind of self-help or mental health, wellness, and then just getting the business of the day done. Yeah, that's hard. It really is hard. It's hard. For, it's hard for me. I mean, I um, I have a lot. You know, knowing my strengths and weaknesses, and you know, where I you know, always doing self evaluation and self assessment, and I, uh, I think I do a pretty decent job of it. And and being attuned to just how weighty um, certain things are. Um, you know, nine eleven, the economy. Um, you know, COVID. I mean, you, you series of crises. You just just storm response. I mean, we have people out respond in the storms and they're away from their families for long periods of time. You know, it could be issues at home with a spouse or a loved one. It could be, you know, child care or adult parent care. 
when these pressures and the stresses that are applied to people, uh, oftentimes we wear it well. I think our particular community wears it even more, right? Because we, you know, we 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 know how to compartmentalize and we know how. I mean, this is a generalization, but we've had to endure a lot, so we know how to continue to pick ourselves up and continue to move forward as as if things are fine. Um, but realizing that, you know, it's not about being less than or more mentally tough or whatever, is that it's weighing on us in all of our individual ways. And as a leader, you have to be uh, respectful, responsive and helpful around that. And so I, I probe and we do wind down Wednesdays with my team, for instance. And, you know, part of it is, is I'm in a new location, so it's get to know the boss and me getting to know them. But a lot of it is like, just how are you doing? Like, how are you doing? Um, and then I ask, after that, I ask, how would your spouse or significant other say you're doing? Because oh, wow. sometimes the answers to those two questions are different, right? Many oh, times I bet. Right? Yeah, I'm doing fine. I'm cool. Everything's fine with me. But what is your spouse or significant Oh, no, she tells me that, you know, I'm edgy, that I'm not eating right. And I, you know, I'm not doing the hobbies I used to do. I'm not exercising. I need to get out. You know, they got the whole list, right? So right. sometimes we're not even aware or able to help ourselves. But those around us who love us and care about us, they, they see when we're not ourselves. And so I ask that second question. I typically get the real answer when I ask yeah. that. So do, do you think that that's a shift in terms of leadership, how um, people are leading now, or do you think it's a broadening, or do you think that that kind of concern always existed, but it just wasn't as much um, in our face because we, you know, we were just working through different types of times? Yeah, it, it needs to be a shift. I'm not so sure everybody has uh, embraced it, right? I mean, it's, it's a capability, right? Being, being empathetic. Uh, having high EQ as well as IQ, it's it's a um, it's a skill set, and you have to. If you don't, you're not born with it. You have to learn it. If you're born with it, you got to improve it, because uh, the times that we live in are demanding it. So I think there's some leaders that are um, recognizing that and and trying to get help on it and trying to do better, and others maybe think like, oh, this is all I have, and hopefully people can find that somewhere else because I'm not able to, you know, I'm not able to lead into that one because that's not me. Um, luckily, where we are in, uh, in my company, we, um, I think, our, you know, I know our senior leader does um, and all of the senior team um, does. And we talk about it all the time. Yeah. yeah. So you leave Con Edison and you're senior vice president and vice president. Uh, when I leave Con Edison, I was vice president. Vice president, and you go to next. What's your next stop? Is it AEP? Is your next yeah. stop? AEP um, was the next stop, and uh, that was um, so. This is where the power of network and reputation really comes in handy, and oftentimes we devalue that. Like when I was in the military, I'm convinced that there was two paths to success. Um, you could be the most competent, talented person that delivered the best results, which I felt like I was closer to that. Or you could be the biggest networker, other words, suck up. Um, and that, and <laughs> you, could, you could be successful that way too. Um, and both both me and another guy who were in that category, we both got one blocks. We both were, you know, so, so, the, so the network is powerful. And I, and I used to put like negative, um, you know, embodiments on networking. But I learned uh, through my career that it actually is a positive, you know, like, like any strength could be, you know, superpower could be used for good or evil, right? So this is a superpower that you can use for good 
um, if you do it right. So, so I had come in contact with Mike Morris, who's the ultimately wound up being the CEO of AEP because he was the CEO of Northeast Utilities. Mm -hmm. I went there for that merger deal. And so when I came back to Con Edison, I had to talk to Mike and I talked to him, you know, about like the fact that I loved working there and I liked the environment, but you know, for, for my 107 versus 106, I needed to go back to Con Edison. Mm -hmm. um, and he said, well, you know, maybe we'll, we'll come in contact somewhere else in the, in the future. I mean, he says, you got a great reputation with me and, and you know, who knows, mm -hmm. right? And I was like, oh, he's got to say that. He's just being nice. You know, he's never, you know, he's, he's got a little line with my name. He's going to draw a line through it. <laughs> but sure enough, the opportunity came around and we talked. And uh, next thing you know, I wound up uh, being at AP, leading uh, his, uh, his largest utility of the 11 utilities that were in the AP family. And uh, I was president and chief uh, operating officer there. Of AEP. Ohio. Uh, Ohio. So Ohio right. the largest operation. You know, we had Indiana and Texas and other places, but I wound up taking over the Ohio operation. I'm, I'm just want to give that a moment because that's a big deal. It's a huge deal. It's that's a, huge a big deal. deal. And I can, I, you know, I was familiar with Mike Morris um, when he came to Connecticut um, and I did regulatory work for UI. So I was watching okay, that yeah. merger for a really long time. I was very close to those commissioners. Um, mm -hmm. It was great story for me to watch Gene McGrath mm -hmm. and, you know, Mike Morris and um, Dick Blumenthal, who was the mm -hmm. attorney general at the time, made yeah. it a point that he was going to speak at that first hearing. Um, and it was it was a lots of lights and cameras and stuff. And 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 when Mike left, and he was a great supporter of the association when he yeah. was in Connecticut. And when he um, went to AEP, I can recall they had some sort of aid function that I attended. And there were oh, several people from Connecticut who actually had come with him. And a couple of the guys recognized my name, but my hair looked different. So the thing about the black hair is a real thing. Yeah, right. So, so the way my head yeah. <laughs> um, and, and Jack Keen and I were talking and he said, I knew a Paula Jackson, but she has a shaved head. You yeah. must not know her. Do you know her? And I was like, same person. And I can remember him being like, but you didn't have hair. And I was like, you know, hair grows. It grows. It's just different. Yeah, um, right. So you go to AEP now and you are the president of AEP Ohio. Yeah. And so tell me a little bit about like that and 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 what was that like for you that was that was great because i told you i had been in all those different all those different roles and it was the ability to bring all that stuff together i mean i had been by that time i had been a plant manager i had you know run the steam system i had been vice president of uh, uh overhead operations i had customer service reporting to me i had safety reporting to me i had been a lobbyist um, i had done like all these different roles and so as the president of the company you got like all that responsibility and a bag of chips that you have to do. So it was like pulling it all together. And I think that was one of the things that Mike saw is that like, you know, you'll get an opportunity in this role to bring, I mean, he even said, I remember one of our conversations, he said like, you might be, you know, out with line crews in the morning, you might be on a customer call in the afternoon, you might be at a fundraiser at night. And, and then the next day it could be completely different, but this like this whole universe of what the utility is about uh, was what I got an opportunity to. And it was, it was a great learning opportunity. Um, having moved to another company it was about learning a new different culture because every company even organizations within companies have their own culture mm -hmm. and i was getting uh, better and better at going into new company uh, com cultures and then adapting i mean you know moving the needle but also adapting to that culture um and so after doing it you know now six times uh, i'm probably pretty good at um 
you know, sizing up what part of culture is important and then, you know, adapting to it. Well, that that's certainly in this day and time when company culture and corporate belonging and inclusion have become mm-hmm. top of mind. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a top tier skill, you know, yeah. being able to adapt and understand what a culture is and the multiple dimensions of a culture within the same place. And I have so, to say you know, that I'm not willing and we should never be willing to sell ourselves out in order to adapt. Right. So right. That, that's a, there's a line. Everybody has their own line. Uh, and I have my line and there's places I've been that like this culture is not for me. I mean, yeah. it's just, this culture is not for me and I'm not willing to adapt myself to this culture because I feel like it, it braces up against my values uh, and what I think is important and where I like to lend my talents. Right. Yeah. So um, we all should have a bottom line on it. Um, but there's, there's a range that we can operate in if we learn how to adapt. Right. So what would you offer as advice to someone who's trying to understand what the culture is in their own organization? I've been in organizations where I thought this is not my culture. Like I, this culture doesn't work for me, but my colleagues would say, I didn't, they would, people in the same organization, if I said that to them would say, I didn't know we had a culture where I would be like, really? Like it's obvious. So how do you help people kind of, what would you give advice to people to kind of figure out what that is in their own kind of work environment? Right, right. I think that um, how I do it is uh, one, you know, I'm, I'm observing. So I, you know, don't make any sudden moves is one of my mantras, especially when you're new, right? I don't want to scare anybody. I don't want to make anybody nervous. I don't want to upset them. You know, no sudden moves. Uh, and so I try to give myself kind of this um, almost uh, investigatory sort of period of time going into a new culture. It's like, what am I seeing? What is being rewarded? What's not being rewarded? You know, how do people show up? What kind of risk? How is there fearlessness in this organization or there's fearfulness in this organization? Are people willing to take risk or are they not willing to take risk? You know, how, how many levels and machinations do we see, you know, presentations go through before they get to the bosses, right? So that tells you what kind of perfection standard they have as part of their culture. So I look for these little tea leaves. Um, and then I also consult with people. I was like, look, I'm new to your culture. Tell me if you had to put it in a, in a soundbite, what's your culture like? And, you know, and then I, I see the trends, you know, people who say like, we're a perfectionist culture, you know, everything has to be perfect. And, you know, it's not worth doing it unless you're doing it perfectly. Um, if I hear enough people say that and then I observe it with my own eyes, then I can put that in the bank. Okay, it's a perfectionist culture. And am I willing to operate in there or how do I need to operate in that kind of environment and, mm-hmm. and so on. So. It's a journey, a, a little bit of discovery, um, and also really asking people, because most people are very happy to tell you about their good, their bads, and their uglies if you just give them the opportunity. Yeah. Like you're doing with me right now, by Right. Way. Well, <laughs> and we got more time, so <laughs> more to come. So here you are now at AEP. You're a, a Black leader. Um, were you the first African-American president that they had for AEP? Um, you know? I was, I'm trying to think of when Charles went into his role. So, um, Charles Patton. Yeah, I think uh, we were kind of peer. I think Charles was maybe already in there or came around the same time. Came around the same like, time. But yeah, he was my, uh, he was my confidant because he had been with the AP family longer than I did. Right. So he was one of the people that I would talk to about the culture and how to, you know, how to be successful and all those kinds of things. So he was a great ally. So I, I think one of the, you know, truisms that people should think about is like find an ally or two that you can, you know, strategize with, commiserate with, I mean, all these kinds mm-hmm. of things. And uh, uh, cause that, that'll be helpful. That way you're not doing it alone. 
um, that you can check yourself on, you know, where you are and that kind of thing. And there's many, I mean, especially when there's only few of us in a company, um, that's kind of a natural place to go to think about um, as an ally and then just a sounding board. Did you feel any additional pressures about being kind of the one of the few um, in that particular role in terms of either um, expectations of others, black and white employees about, you know, your responsibility, if you know, was it a responsibility to yeah. mentor, sponsor, like, how did you, what did you feel about that? And how did you manage it? Yeah, I, you know, through my career, and, and then there's a switch, I think that happened to me, and I think it happens to everyone, hopefully the switch happens. Initially, it's all about assimilation and showing people that you're just like them. Like, yeah, I mean, I'm just like you. I have the same interests. I wear, you know, and, and IBM is I wear the same blue shirt and I have the same pocket protector and <laughs> we're the same. And, and, and you spend a lot of time trying to help others feel comfortable around you um, that you're the same. Um, but at some point and, and progressive organizations that are really trying to get the maximum value of all people, you really are starting to highlight your differences about how you think differently, how you come to the same problem from a different vantage point and how that's accretive and additive to getting to a good solution and really to the bottom line for the company. And so um, I think I was straddling that when I was at AP in my career. Uh, prior to that, it was all about assimilation. And after that, it was all about my differences. So I think that was a real kind of balancing act for me um, in, in my career. There's some people, unfortunately, and I think it's tragic, that never make the transition, right? So you're in your retirement party, still trying to show people that you're just like them yeah. uh, as it's realizing your own worth and value. And in this day and age with all the unrest and everything that's going on, um, you know, I think I said on another video we talked about, um, you know, I'm much more uh, moving towards uh, Malcolm X than I am from Martin Luther King. Cause <laughs> I don't want to hear it you know, our, our reason for the impact, I don't care about, I just care about the impact, you know? So yeah. if it's unintentional bias versus intentional bias, you know, you might get a half a point for that, but the, the outcome is the bias is there and you're not hiring people, you're not promoting people, there's a revolving door, you're not treating people fairly, people can't belong, people can't be their best. That's the outcome, so that's what I'm focused on. And until you change that, I mean, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time upstream about your, your why. Yeah. Well, interestingly enough, and it's interesting fact, um, Malcolm X's oldest daughter, Ambassador Shabazz, and she's the ambassador, lifelong ambassador for Belize, um, actually started her career at Con Edison. No way. Yes. Um, she is an amazing woman um, and actually someone who I'm hoping we will also have to have at the, on a podcast. She and I have talked about some other things, um, but she shared with me that her first job, one of her first jobs was taking payments face-to-face um, -face from customers at Con Ed. Mm. And um, that was one of my first jobs. And so we had a connection there because I was like, that was actually the very first job that I had. Mm. Um, and so she has an interesting connection to energy from that experience, yeah. Yeah. Um, but also a great understanding of the importance of the work. Right, right. Um, and the impact you have on people. So yeah. that's just a friendly fact. Yeah, um, so tell, tell me about how you made that transition. What was it that made you decide this assimilation thing ain't really working the way, working for me and decided I gotta do something else. I think that's how I came to it. It wasn't working for me. I mean, you know, I found that, you know, I wasn't happy. I wasn't bringing my full self to the table. I felt like I was second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth guessing myself. And that's a lot of energy. That was, that's the thing, it's a lot of energy, a lot of time. Um, and I, I, it just, it just wasn't working. And, and I had to try a better way, a different way 
and it took it took courage it took taking a risk it took being in an environment where i felt like that was okay to do um and you know it 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 just slowly but surely step by step started moving down that path you know part of like kind of a mentor mentee relationship i was mentoring a lot of people and it's not when you're in a position to give other people advice that they could take that could potentially impact their life in a significant way um it's like i can't tell people to you know bring their whole self to work when I don't do it myself, right? I mean, it became hypocritical. And I think those values of, you know, duty, honor, country and being fair and truthful, those are like kind of my, my core values. Um, and it just, it just was becoming more and more of a conflict, right? And so I had to say, you know, I'm willing to rip the bandaid off and try to be my authentic self and uh, see what happens. And if people don't want me at that place or I don't want to be at that place, then I'd already proven that I could uh, move somewhere else and, and, and do it. So I, I did it. Wow. So how long did you spend at AEP? Uh, six and a half years. At six AEP. and a half years at AEP. And then you go to Iberdrola. But that, at that point, was it Energy East? It was Iberdrola at that point. It had, it was, it had bought Energy East and rebranded it Iberdrola. And uh, yeah, I came in and that was, uh, that was really great because I was looking for, I mean, I had, so I had big market, Con Edison, New York City, you know, hyper-focused uh, examples. Whenever we had an outage, a small one in New York, we had to like let the commission know like immediately and literally immediately. So I went to public service in New Hampshire and I had that same mindset. We had a big outage. And I was like, oh, we've got to let the, and they're like, no, we just send them a fax within a week or two and that's okay. <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, that's another extreme. You know, so AP was somewhere in the middle. Um, and so I had done big market, small market, but all in the US. So Ibajola being a, a, a Spanish energy giant and, you know, with operations like similar operations in Spain and in Brazil and, you know, somewhat in Mexico and in Scotland and in the US. I was like, this is a great opportunity to learn what's happening around the globe right. in this industry. And it was, it was fascinating. And we worked um, as a global team. So there were frequent meetings between like all of my peers, the COOs in Scotland and then in Spain and in Brazil. So we got to share best practices, regulatory models and all the other things that go on. And it was, it was really an awesome experience. I'm glad I had it and it really, you know, all this stuff is additive to what you bring to the table. So I feel like I have a slightly different lens um, than I would have had otherwise. Did you, so when you were doing that and meeting with your peers, were you, were there things that you noticed that just were like, look, the, the way we do things here in the States are different and maybe it's not as efficient. Maybe there are some things that we can learn and tweak and, or did you have an experience where your peers would look at what you were doing and say, like, why are you guys doing it that way? That doesn't even seem to make sense. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that happened often. It's almost Please, like you're really? in the room asking that question. Oh, sorry. Because <laughs> uh, part of, no, that's great. Because part of it is, um, especially if you're running a global operation, you're trying to take best practices around the globe and then like, you know, peanut butter them across, right? Um, right. We did that in, in AP with 11 states. You know, somebody had a really good, reg I know Texas had, when we started smart meter rollouts, mm -hmm. um, smart meter, we got to get paid in advance for deploying those smart meters. Well, that's awesome as opposed to having to wait for a rate case to actually collect on this, this spending, right? So once we saw that in Texas, like, hey, can we, can we apply that to the other states? So think about that now on a global scale. Um, they bought Energy East because they saw inefficiencies in the way they ran a business. So they paid a premium. Typically in any kind of merger acquisition, you pay a premium and you expect to get that back by introducing all these efficiencies. Sure. Uh, that, that, and so 
the company, Ibajola, was looking for efficiencies. And that's one of the reasons why they hired me to help get efficiencies in the organization. And so we, I mean, the Spanish um, system grid compared to our grid was much more modern, modern much more automated, uh, much more, you know, everything. Um, and so they thought if you could invest in these ways in the right way, we could reduce our, our cost to operate our, our business. So there was a lot of best practice sharing, mostly, believe it or not, from outside the country into Iberdrola uh, USA, not the other way around. And then I was surprised by that because I thought like, you know, we, we've got it, you know, we, we figured it Go out. USA. But it was surprising to see, especially in Spain, they were so much further ahead of us uh, in a lot of ways. Really? Mm -hmm. And so when you're doing that, right, you have a commission that you're trying, you're engaging with. Was Ibadrola the, was Ibadrola, um, um, did Ibadrola get Energy East prior to National Grid and Brooklyn Union merger? Which, which was first? Were you the first kind of international company now that you've got to work with regulatory yeah. regulators? Right, right. I think National Grid was uh, slightly before. Before. They were the only two um, at the time. Right. Canadian, um, you know, folks that have purchased the uh, U.S. Uh, operations, but at the time it was those two, surprisingly in that region, right? You know, kind of right. next to each other. Um, but yeah, so it was early on, and it was you know different regulatory complexities and you know, different expectations. There was a lot of a lot of learning on the side of the um, the Spanish parent company about mm -hmm. how to operate it. So the question was, well, those I mean, every issue was like, well, we don't do it that way. We're different here. You know, was saying how much, what was real and what wasn't. You know, right? Like sifting through, like, yeah, some this is a real thing that does is not you can't change it in the US, or at least not in the short term, because it's a it's a tried and true locked in, either regulatory compliance issue or something like that. Or like, you know, that's just myth or that's just the way you've always done it, and you could actually do it differently. So trying to sort through that stuff was always uh, always a challenge. But the question came up, you know, every day, all day long. So we often hear about this idea of managing up and you'll, we'll, you know, you'll talk with employees about you need to learn how to manage up, you know, but what you just described is actually another way of managing up. It's another form of managing up, except that it's much bigger, right? Mm -hmm. Because they're, they're not necessarily sharing the same cultural, they're not grounding the same cultural aptitudes that you are. So tell me a little bit about how you did that. And then um, Add to that, what advice would you give to people who are trying to understand what managing up really means and, and how that, how do you show that and do that? Yeah. So managing up has a very, um, it has a dual um, meaning to me as most people do, because I've got to manage up to my boss and my board, mm -hmm. um, but I also have people that are managing up to me. Mm -hmm. So to me, as a leader, I first internalized this, like I've got to create an environment for my people to feel comfortable telling me their truth, challenging me in a way that, um, you know, is respectful, but, you know, really they feel comfortable doing, um, you know, disagreeing uh, respectfully, doing all that. I've, I've got to create that um, environment as a leader. And so I spend a lot of time trying to make sure, and I ask the question, like, well, what else can I do to help you um, feel comfortable in this environment doing these things that, you know, I say that I want, that we say that we want. Some of it is just time, you know, you, you know, people have to build trust and gain trust. There's, you know, at least two kinds of people, right? There's some that, you know, they never met a stranger and they trust everybody implicitly until they prove themselves uh, untrustworthy. And then there's others who always met a stranger and they're like, and, you know, until we got 30 years together, I'm going to trust you, you know, I'm not going to trust you at all. Right. right. Uh, and so trying to pull that together and accelerate those people who are in that second category, like, what do you need to see from me? 
today, tomorrow, next week to build that trust. Because some of it I think I know, but I, I need your help and partnership on, on achieving what this is. Uh, one of my places I worked, I asked that question 10 times and nobody ever really gave me an answer. The 11th time, some brave soul in private told me, we want to know what your favorite ice cream is. And uh, I would have never thought that divulging my favorite ice cream was going to be the thing that gained trust. And what they really were saying was it was less about the ice cream and more about, we want to know you. about your personal life. We want to know more about you. We want to know more about what makes you tick and what your sensitivities are and all that kind of stuff. So they brought it into, you know, shorthand was the favorite ice cream, but you know, it said, okay, now we're getting somewhere. Like, okay, now I can, I can do that. I can share with, it's chocolate, by the way, for anybody who's interested. <laughs> <laughs> but I can, I mean, I can lean into that and I can, I can share on that. But um, so create an environment where people um, feel safe and comfortable managing up, um, you know, having a, a true and transparent dialogue with me. Um, and then for me, it's, it's, it's really setting the expectation and getting the endorsement from my boss to be the same way with, with him and my board to be the same way with them. And uh, sometimes it's asked, sometimes it's, you know, through um, engagements, you can read that, but, you know, it's kind of when you interview for anything, I mean, before you go into a new role or even when you get a new boss or even when you're talking about your annual review, it's a good time to say like, what are your expectations? And like, what, what would let you know that I'm being a good employee? How would I manage you? How, how do you like to hear bad news? You know, um, right. Like having those dialogues that'll help you shape how you manage, manage up. I mean, it's, it's kind of a negative term, but again, any superpower can be used for good and bad. So managing up doesn't have to be a bad thing um, if you're doing it in a way to help the cause, like help to move the organization together or, or forward or those kinds of things. This is only self-serving. And I say only because there's always an element uh, in there that should be about yourself and where you're going. But if it's only self-serving, that's when it becomes a superpower used for bad. I'm not even sure if I'm answering your question, but. You actually are answering my question. You're giving me like five more. Um, so I'm thinking about kind of, you know, I'm somewhat familiar with your leadership team at Iberdrola because we have, I have a dear friend who was part of that leadership team. Um, but I, I want to talk a little bit about diversity and, and in this kind of context, right? That as a, as a black leader, um, you know, there has been hesitancy over the years or at least a perceived hesitancy. So let me just say that this, I don't know that there actually has been hesitancy. I think there is a narrative and a perceived hesitancy that black leaders may or may not be as supportive of, right, promoting African-Americans because they don't wanna be accused mm -hmm. of showing some sort of favoritism and you could mm -hmm. apply the same for women leaders, et cetera. And, and we mm -hmm. can start by saying, in my opinion, that's all BS and I'm not even sure that that's true. Right. Um, but Tell me about kind of what your experience has been now through all of these years and, and yeah. moving and how, if it's come up, how you've been able to address it. Yeah. So um, we can have a whole nother segment on the psychology of how to suppress, you know, insert whatever diverse group you want to in the workforce. I mean, it is not accidental that, you know, sometimes that narrative gets out there so that the opposite happens. So we don't hire ourselves, you know, because mm -hmm. we don't want to be seen, right. whatever, right? So um, that's a whole nother chapter. But but for me, is, is, it ties back into the, the thread you pulled about service. I mean, I, service to me is lots of vectors, right? It's service to my country when I was in the military, service to our customers in the, in the utility, and service to our people um, in my, in my, in my uh, move through the utility business. So I'm always thinking, I mean, I have an open door 
the, the one thing I'm most proud of is when I moved from utility to utility, um, I mentored people, you know, when I was in those roles, they came to me, just gravitated because of my position initially, but then we created a relationship over time. And some of those early folks that I mentor, we're still connected. We're still friends, you know, um, people I've worked with that work for me are friends of mine. So like, that that doesn't happen accidentally and it's not every person like that i didn't have that connection with it but it's enough people to tell me that you know if both people are showing up and bringing their 50 percent to the table like in my leadership environment as i've gotten better and better and better over the years i look back at you know kevin walker and that, those junior positions when i was trying to seem like i was older and i wore suspenders and like had a beard because ah. <laughs> i was so young compared to my beard uh, I would like I wouldn't I wouldn't follow that person like but but like what I have grown through learning and watching and you know, bumping my toe and stubbing my toe. Um, I feel like I've matured over that time. Um, but I have always leaned into serving our people in the capacity that I've been in. So I tried to get, you know, Martin Luther King's holiday as a real holiday at one of the places I worked. And, um, you know, I was one of the early supporters of President Obama when nobody else was around supporting President Obama. They were supporting, I mean, he was running candidate Obama. You know, they were either Hillary fans or, or Republicans. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was out there on the island by myself and people were laughing at me, you know, and, I, and then all of a sudden it was like, man, you're like, you know, you're, you, you're wise all of a sudden. <laughs> I don't think, I don't think I'm wise all of a sudden, but I remember having to make a decision about um, a, an assistant for one of my roles I was in. And I had three competent candidates. The most competent was an African-American woman. And I thought for a second, just like you said, I thought for a second, now if I hire her, it's going to be seen. I was new to my role. I mean, gonna, this looks like he's favored. And so I, but it was only a second because the next second I said, now if she was white and I was white, I wouldn't be having this discussion with myself. Right. So I said, all right, then act as if, you know, I've always said, act as if you are where you want to be. Yeah. Um, act as into the role that you think you want to be. I mean, don't bridle yourself like, okay, I'm not a vice president, so I'm not going to act like an officer. If you think you have potential, act like an officer. People will see it and they'll go like, wow, this person should be an officer. Uh, for me, um, I, I was saying, I'm not going to act like we're, there's you know, a, you know, uneven uh, playing field and there's not equity here. I'm going to act like there's equity. I get to hire the same race just like anybody else gets to hire the same right. race. And she was absolutely the right candidate. She was absolutely the right you know, assistant in that, in that time. And I was glad I made, the, I made that decision. Yeah. So, you know, you started by saying that, you know, you left Con Ed, you went to AEP, we, we go now to Iberdrola, and that somewhere in all of there, right, your own status changes, because you leave Con Edison, and you say, it's, it's kind of easy, I'm a single guy, I make the decision, I go. Um, you now are not, you are no longer, at some point, you are no longer a single oh, guy, yeah. Yeah. and you're a dad. Yeah. Um, and and yeah. so, do those decisions then get more difficult because you leave Iberdrola to go to SoCal Edison and, mm. and now we know you're at Duquesne. Did right. that decision become more difficult because of your family? Yeah. Um, and then I, want, I, want, I would love to hear you share a little bit about like how you've been able to balance all of that. You have twins. Yes. I have twins, something else that we share. We have very a lot of things in common. Yeah, that's right. Kind of weird um, <laughs> that my twins are way older than your twins. But how do you kind of yeah. can put that into the mix of these yeah. decisions you're making. So, you know, um, anybody who has kids and, and I remember because I, I was became a dad late in life and I have seven year old twins and, uh, and I'm 57. So I was 50 when I had like babies. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, you know, I used to hear people talk about their kids all the time. 
And I was like, you have to say that stuff because you can't give them back. So you got to make it seem like it's a, you know, a really good thing. <laughs> thing ever. <laughs> but I know that you can't go where you want to go. You can't do what you want to do. You can't spend what you want to spend. You can't do any of those things because you have these kids. Um, but when I had, you know, when we had our kids, I turned into that dad, like, like the, the clouds parted and I turned into that dad. I was like, oh, it all makes sense now. It all makes sense to me. And I am the most doting, the most proud, the most like, you know, I'm playing Legos, I'm making Google noises, I'm doing all kinds of crazy stuff. I'm painting my daughter's nails because she, you know, the apple of my eye and whatever she asked me to do. And I hope this is not being shown in, in uh, first grade because I don't want her to know this, but I think she already does. <laughs> I'm around her finger. And um, that, it, it becomes a lot of weight and gravity and responsibility. So like I'm, decisions I make, I take that in consideration, but it also emboldens me to do the things and model the things that I want them to learn, right? Yeah. So if you're not happy somewhere, I don't want them to learn that you should just suffer in silence and right. focus on the paycheck and focus on the retirement. And at some point, you know, you'll be rewarded, you know, in the afterlife for, you know, suffering all this time in an environment where you're not, your, not yourself. I don't want to model that behavior. So you can, you can sense the, the, the push and pull of that. You know, I, I want to make sure I can take care of my family, but I also don't want to model the behavior where um, you should just be trapped and focused on, you know, not your happiness, but on, on money or stature or whatever it is. So that has been the balance I've been walking. And quite frankly, it goes with me, you know, moving towards Malcolm X. I'm much more about modeling the behavior these days. And I am not independently wealthy. So it's not like I, you know, I've banked all this stuff and now I can do it. Mm -hmm. It's just that my sensitivities today tell me that I'm more about taking care of my family from a, um, a heart place um, and, and modeling those behaviors that are going to be skills that, you know, live well beyond me with my, with my kids uh, than trying to hustle to, to do something that really um, is against those things. So it's, yeah. it's, um, it's a balance. It's still a balance. I'm not saying that I'm, you know, playing a guitar on the corner because I like playing a guitar, um, but um, I'm taking more decisions that are about modeling the behavior I like to see my kids do. Yeah. You will be surprised at how much they will model back at you as they get older. I, I remain surprised when my kids model stuff and I'll think, where do they get that from? And someone will say, <laughs> uh, watching you do it. Right. And a lot of times it's great stuff. And sometimes it's a little bit of my crazy that I'm like, yeah. oh, yeah. probably shouldn't have shown you that part. That, <laughs> you could have left that, made that confident. But even um, the fallibility, right? Even the fact like you make mistakes, that you're human, that nobody's perfect. I mean, all that stuff is good modeling. I mean, you can't, absolutely. you were perfect and you're like, okay, I'm only going to show you the stuff that, you know, is beneficial and going to help you. And I'm going to hide all the things that aren't. Um, not to say you would do it on purpose, but it just shows the humanity of all sure. of us. Allows them, give, allows them to give themselves more grace and allows them to give other people more grace. Yeah. So in addition to all of this other stuff, so this incredible career that you've had as a leader, um, at, you know, a life of service um, that extended way past your time in the military, you're also an entrepreneur. Um, and so you have this app, TurtleWise, that really is, you're right, a new way for us to mentor one another and connect. And I wondered um, if you share a little bit about like what made you decide to do that. I won't even ask you where you found the time for that <laughs> bit of development. Um, but what made you decide that that was something yeah. that you wanted to pursue? 
Yeah, so um, this is one of those stories of out of what seemingly to be um, a terrible event, you know, this phoenix rises and, you know, again, divine intervention comes in and, 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 and shows you like how, um, you know, lemons can turn into lemonade. So I got let go from um, a chief operating officer position. Um, very much for my ego helpful, very not, not related to performance. It was related to a merger that happened. And um, the decision was to let, uh, uh, you know, terminate this uh, chief operating officer role. I just got my performance review and I was, you know, very highly rewarded there and compensated. Um, and then I get um, a discussion with my boss who said, oh, by the way, we're, you know, we're doing away with your, doing away with your position. Wow. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I was like out of nowhere. Um, and I went through the, all the cycles, you know, of sad, mad, glad, you know, mad again, you know, sad, you know, the whole kind of thing. Um, but whenever those things happen, especially at an executive level, I mean, there's a agreement on, you know, how you exit gracefully and what you can say and what you can't say and how you're compensating where you're not compensated. So I felt like it was a very fair deal when I left. Uh, but that what that did was it got me to, to ask the question like what is it that i really want to do and this service thread i'm so glad that you asked about that early because it is the thread that goes through here um it's like i want to help other people um find access get access to, to networks and people that they otherwise wouldn't so a little bit about my background my mom was 16 when she had me I told you nobody ever been in the military, nobody ever had their own job, no, no college graduates, no homeowners, no, you know, no nothing. So we were, I mean, super happy, super uh, spiritually grounded, super optimistic. And those were the gifts that I got from my upbringing. But after that, like you're on your own, you got, you got to figure it out from there. And um, it, what these people were pouring into me along the way, the guidance counselor, my, my best friends, parents who were both like academics and doctors and all this stuff, sitting around their dinner table, go, Kevin, you should do this. Kevin, you should do that. Think about doing that. Think about doing these things. All along the way, there were people like filtering their wisdom into me, not because I was paying them, not because it was going to show up on their tax reform or their resume or any of that stuff, but because they thought it was the right thing to do. So it was a, a huge altruism thread through all of this. Mm -hmm. um, that I recognized that if it wasn't for those those um, broadening of the worldview, um, people sharing their wisdom with me, um, that I would have made some decisions that would have been very different in my life, and I would have been at a different place in my life, both mm -hmm. physically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, all that stuff. And so I wanted to give that to other people who didn't have access. And I thought the way to do it is do it virtually. I think it affects mostly, you know, black and brown people. So I thought it would be something that could serve my community. And so in that interim time, when I, um, you know, was out trying to figure out what I wanted to do, I said, let me, let me think about doing this uh, startup. And um, that's what birthed TurtleWise. And it's, uh, it's uh, a, 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 certainly a passion project because uh, it's like my life personified in a in a business and I I love it to death and like my, you know my family um, myself I gotta put myself in there that's the self self-care piece and then fertilize it wise <laughs> <laughs> wow so you moved to Denver were you in Denver I know you were in Colorado was it Denver yes Denver okay yeah. Yeah. Um, and you establish Turtle Eyes and you're trying to grow that. And then you end up at SoCal Edison. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you're 
what I really, really enjoy about even the relationship that I have with you, Kevin, in particular, is that I love that you keep in touch. Like, cause I like to hear what people are doing and where they're landing and, and mm -hmm. how things are going. And I always really appreciate when someone just says, Hey, I just want you to know that I'm doing X right now. Yeah. Like, to me, yeah. that's just so awesome. Yeah. Um, so yeah. you leave Denver to go to California. Yeah, I would have to say that um, when I was in Denver, I was doing TurtleWise and I was doing, I was working for um, EY as a consultant. So, yeah, so. I, for six months, you know, it was, but I got to see what the other side of the, the fence was like. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was really impressed by, you know, that group. I mean, the average age was in the twenties. Uh, you know, it was so funny. I felt like the old, I mean, that's, you know, I went from being the youngest in my sector to be the oldest in my uh -huh. sector. And even with the startup, there's a lot of young people that are working around that space. And I find that, you know, young people get a bad rap because they um, they process things differently, but they have just as much value as more senior seasoned people. And if you look at them that way, um, they will be your best assets. And, and I think EY looked at it that way. I mean, they had this thriving consulting business with 20 somethings, you know, yeah. doing most of the work. Um, and it was impressive. Um, but I went to Edison and Edison, um, you know, Edison's cutting edge of, of, you know, environment and, and like technology and all the things that we're doing. I mean, I think that they, they're the closest approximation to what I saw in Spain when I talked about like, you know, what they were doing and how progressive they were to our, to our business. Um, they're handicapped by, you know, climate change. I mean, the wildfires out there uh, that are going on even today, um, are paralyzing from a business standpoint. I mean, that is all consuming. I mean, yeah, I, I, when I joined the stock was $83. Um, today it's in the fifties and not because the fundamentals of the business and the, the people have changed. It's because the wildfires is such an overhang on, um, you know, how far and how fast they can go. Uh, so the politics in the state are very unique. Uh, there's all kinds of things in California that are stacked up against um, being a sustainable, successful utility business. But there's some really sharp people out there that are cutting a path um, through all of this smoke, literally and figuratively, yeah. uh, to get things done for the, for the shareholder and for, and for the customer. Yeah. And so then you leave Edison and now you, here you are at Duquesne. And I, and I appreciate what you said about young people because I think you're right. Um, sometimes they do get a bad rap. And, and I always kind of describe it as, our kids like we created these quote unquote monsters that we seem mm -hmm. to think we have um, mm -hmm. in the workforce except they are children and, and right. um, I think for a lot of us as parents did not necessarily fully appreciate that our children actually believe the things that you tell them yeah they believe you when you tell them you know yeah. what you can accomplish anything with yeah. xyz hard work whatever whatever those parameters are yeah. that you've given them Mm -hmm. um, you know, they believe you when you tell them, you know what, you can contribute to the world in a big, in a big way. And you should think yeah. about the world broader than who you are. Um, and yet that's the person who shows up in our companies. And we're frustrated by that, even though it's kind of like, I think, wow, that's kind of who my kids are for who they work. I'm sure they have bosses who are like, oh, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really interesting. It's the funny thing, you know, every generation, you know, you think about, you know, way back, right? Our parents, mm -hmm. you were like these renegades and, you know, yeah. they wasn't focused and didn't have, you know, all this stuff. And now we think of it. So I think it's just generational to some extent. Yeah. I have seen the other where like they have been like a um, critical and incredible uh, part of the recipe of success for big organizations and you know, small startups and everything. So I, 
I think that, you know, just like any other subgroup that are not monolithic, but, you know, have similar traits, you got you to gotta be able to leverage everything. And, 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 and diversity of age is the same as diversity of experience or ethnicity background or gender or any of that stuff, right? Yeah, certainly with the, the young people that I've had an opportunity to work with, I'm always kind of amazed at the things because they'll suggest something and I'll say, can you really do that? I'm like, oh, yeah, it only takes about 10 minutes. And I'm just like... I kind of thought I was a cool 50 something and mm -hmm. I don't think I am anymore because I have no idea what you're talking about. Right. Um, but we're on the front lines of all the civil unrest we're seeing. It's the young yeah. Yeah. And so it, it really does, I think, challenge us to be lifelong learners in a way that we hadn't considered. Right. Yes. They, they didn't tell you who the teacher was going to be. Mm -hmm. They didn't tell you that the teacher is going to be 30 years younger than you are. Right. Um, but there's so much to gain from that. Um, so we have a few more minutes. And so I guess my last question for you is um, a two-parter, of course. Um, I think one is, you know, have you thought about what do you want people to say about you? And then it's, you know, what advice do you give to those of us who, who are looking at kind of your pathway, um, which is unusual in that you know, you have moved from company to company in a, in a sector where people tend to stay a long time. And if I want to achieve what you have, that level of success, those those types of roles, what advice would you offer me? Yeah. Well, the first part is easy that, you know, this is a person who left, you know, the people, the planet, you know, the space that he occupied, you know, better off than it was before he before he came. I mean, that mm -hmm. that's to me, that would be great to have on a tombstone. Uh, it is all encompassing. And that's really the, my worldview is like, is this, this going to be better off with my uh, engagement and my you know, in, input and my focus, or is it going to be worse off? And if I actually believe it's going to be worse off, then I, I don't want to be involved in it, you know, right? It's not something that I'm trying to do. So I, I think hopefully people say that um, about me. Um, as far as a path to success, I mean, there, the, the thing is that there is no path, right? Um, this, this saying about, um, you know, bloom where you're planted is, um, is a, a part of the recipe. It's like, you know, as long as you're in the role that you're in, like do absolutely the best job you can do because that one you learn and that lifelong learner you said is one of my um, other truisms is that we always should be learning. We, always, we should be giving and sharing and we also should be learning uh, mm -hmm. from others. Um, and so that lifelong learner is like, learn, learn, learn what you can uh, in that role, make as big an impact as you can, leave the place better than when you, when you found it. People will see that. Uh, and even if they don't see it, you'll be able to call on that as you're showing it to other people. Like when you're interviewing for your next role, you'll be able to say, this is what I did in that role. This is how I left it better. This is what I learned. And this is how I can apply that in my next uh, venture. Uh, but there is no path. So, so, so bloom where you're planted, um, you know, know your limits. Like I would just say, know your limits. You got to know your limits. I mean, if you have none, um, develop some. I want to find some. Yeah. Develop some. Because I think, you know, for us in particular, uh, as African-Americans, I think we've been trained to endure. We've had to, we've had to endure. And that's a, that's a good trait to be able to endure. Um, but on the other side of that, we have to have limits. Like, you know, Rosa Parks did not, you know, she had a limit, you know, Jackie Robinson had a limit. I mean, all these people had a limit. You know, Martin Luther King had a limit, even though he endures so much, you know, know and have limits. 
um, and then create a strategy to, to, you know, to change your viewpoint, your vantage point in your location. If, if that place that you are is not working for you. Thank, Thank you. you. I'm going to add one to your list that I learned from you today, What's which that? is that there's always an opportunity to be of service. Yes. I love it. There's love always it. an opportunity to be of service. So I will say thank you, thank um, you. for all of the nuggets that I knew. I started by saying, I knew you were going to drop some nuggets, man, you've dropped a whole lot of them. And so I thank you for really just sharing yourself with me and with those of us who are listening. Well, thank, thank you so you. much for that. Good luck to everyone. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this great conversation with Kevin Walker. For all things Zay, please follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. And also check out our website at www.aabe.org. Next week, we have Carla Peterman, Senior Vice President of Strategy and Regulatory Affairs for Southern California Edison. And remember, always bet on Black. What does it mean for our sector to lead in climate change? What does that look like? Well, I think first and foremost, it's having a, a commitment to doing something about it. Our sector isn't responsible for all the emissions by any means, but we represent a sizable share. And so one of the things that I've been impressed about over the last few years is utility executives saying, hey, climate change is real. Our product contributes to it. Let's have a plan to help keep providing this essential service, but reducing the environmental impact. And by reducing greenhouse gases in our system, we're also helping to reduce some of the air quality issues that oftentimes are associated with resources as well. And so I think it's just being acknowledging the problem and the opportunity is the first step of leadership.